Hi there, this is Bulut Girgin from Gente Mizerözer and I have Emre on the other side of the microphone. Emre, why don't you just introduce yourself to us? Hi Bulut, thanks for inviting me to this recording. I'm a partner of Kinstella Turkey, which is affiliated to Gente Mizerözer and also has offices throughout emerging Europe and Central Asia and is a leading office in mainly in the area of corporate and corporate finance, as well as international transactions. So today our topic is uh, force majeure in international uh, contracts. And I guess as the force majeure closes in the contracts are like landline phones. I just always uh, look at it like this. So you don't use it that much, but you have it. It is good to have one a landline, landline phone in, at your house. And, and, and in international contracts, force majeure closes are... Uh, very important these days, especially with the COVID outbreak. I remember myself when I was a trainee lawyer. I just I was revising a contract, and the the force majeure clause included uh, also included volcano eruptions. It was between two Turkish companies, and we were just laughing that it's like so we should we should we add zombie apocalypses or I don't know <laughs> alien alien invasions. But a few years later, uh, the uh, the volcano in Iceland uh, erupted. That's right. And yeah, and and then we understand that it is it can happen. So today, most of us living in an extreme situations are all world, globally. So COVID nineteen outbreak has significantly impacted the business, especially the international contract supply chains. And um, what do you think about this, Emre? Yeah, I mean it's interesting you mention. I guess between two Turkish parties, the um, likelihood of a volcanic eruption affecting the contractual relation is probably um, quite a low risk, I imagine. I don't, I don't know when the last <laughs> time a volcano erupted in Turkey. But again, years ago, I guess. You know, the interesting thing with this pandemic, it also sounds very old-fashioned. You know, you think this is something that happened, you know, like a hundred years ago, and uh, we don't suffer from it anymore. So, you're right, I mean, I guess force majeure is... The whole point of it is, you know, it's something that lies towards the end of a contract when people start to get tired as they review their contracts. But, uh, <laughs> it, you know, these kind of shock or extraordinary situations, people, this is the first clause that people are looking at and seeing how what they can do with their contracts. I mean, it's not only the pandemic in itself, it's also the various um, governmental measures and you're right it's affecting economies both in you know emerging economies and developed economies it's affecting international supply chains raw materials oil and gas automotive sector i mean uh, there's a few car factories that are effectively shutting down in various regions uh, and that affects that all of these have a not knock-on effect throughout the the chain from the raw materials to the processing phase to uh, sale and distribution to end customers as well as you know ob obvious sectors such as the airline industry and you know this is i i think what a lot of lawyers are thinking about and clients are thinking about in these days so emre like why do we always use english in most of the international sales contracts is there a reason well, behind it or is it just english is the most common language well, English itself is the most common language. It's, it's the language of business, and I think people have, have gotten used to uh, to agreeing contracts in the English language, even 
you know, between countries where they may have a, you know, at least a sort of common base language. But uh, English is certainly the most common language in international contracts. And in English law itself is is often used certainly between uh, between international parties in different regions. So between, I don't know, between China and Turkey or Turkey and uh, South America, to give examples. You may find that within a certain continent, such as, you know, within Europe, maybe people will be more familiar with uh, civil code jurisdictions like Switzerland as the governing law. But I think you know, in general terms, English law is is usually used as the um, as the governing law of the contract. Uh, of course, governing law is separate to jurisdiction, and you may see jurisdiction clauses which will either choose a a particular court or a particular arbitration process right. to resolve disputes. So the, we can assume that mo- there are a lot of uh, contracts that are affected with the COVID nineteen outbreak are dealt with the English law. So that's right. Can, I mean, uh, I mean, why why is that? I mean, it's it's not just about language itself. It's it's also yeah. it's because English law has you know for I guess a couple of centuries or more has has a sort of developed body of contractual law and case law and precedent, and it gives you know it gives parties as well, first, a, a sense of contract certainty that the contract they're signing is unlikely underneath the contractual terms you agreed that there's not going to be a surprise based on a, a provision of, of, of law or legislation. Uh, and I think the other thing is, is obviously neutrality between international parties. Uh, and I guess the third, as I, as I mentioned, is an experienced judiciary or arbitrators with, with an English law background who are familiar with at least the challenges and the types of dispute that arise from international business or sale contracts. So you, you, you tend to get a bit more predictability in the decision-making process. And actually arbitration, when you think of arbitration, a lot of arbitration centers tend to at least have a mix of civil code and common law attributes. So the, the way that evidence is obtained and disclosed between parties, as well as how witnesses may be cross-examined, take a lot of elements from, uh, from the common law perspective. And, that's, I, I, and I think the, the, the mix of these probably leads to why English law is, is usually a common choice of law. I see. I ask this because, so do you think Emre, COVID-19 pandemic is, can be described, of course it is a force majeure, but is, is it like a force majeure for every contract or should we look like for each contract, whether this, this COVID-19 outbreak affects negatively and it can be the, the force majeure closes can be triggered? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. You have to break this down between the types of contracts you're looking at i mean if you ask the man in the street or the businessman and most people would say of course what are you talking about the pandemic is is obviously a force majeure event and then but once you go into the details there are obviously different types of contracts in everyday use which are more or less affected by the the pandemic and therefore it, it becomes a question of detail and what you first have to do when client or, or when you yourself examine the contract is to sort of stand back and see well first of all does the contract address an event of force majeure and, and what does it say and what, what are the consequences uh, you have to remember first of all English law actually does not provide for a force majeure clause there's not a fallback if you're if you're 
contract that you've uh, agreed, let's say back in January, doesn't have a force majeure clause, that might be difficult for you. So you, you first have to look at the contract itself. And actually, English law is flexible in the sense of you could either draft the force majeure clause yourself, and there are a variety of ways to, to draft force majeure clauses, or you can actually simply incorporate by reference. And, and in a lot of international sale contracts are obviously agreed in a very, usually in quick and efficient way. People are not negotiating these things for months. So you, you can actually see a lot of st either standard form force majeure clauses, or you may just see something that's as simple as, as a reference to the, there's a, there are probably two very common international standards. One is the UN Convention on Contracts for the International Sale of Goods, which is commonly known as CISG or the Vienna Convention, or there is the international, the ICC, International Chamber of Commerce published force majeure clause. So you, you can often see con contracts which just say, ICC force majeure clause or a reference to the uh, CISG. But if you don't incorporate it or don't draft it, there is nothing in English law that says you have to automatically uh, incorporate the convention or the ICC force majeure clause. But what does a force majeure clause, and this is where you have to sort of, once you get into the detail, you can see what the issues are. But if you look at a typical force majeure clause, it will have these three basic elements to it. Uh, one is unforeseeability. What, did the parties at the time contemplate such an event, such a force majeure event? Uh, secondly, the event has to be something that's outside of the control of the parties. It, it can't be something that you could avoid or, or that you should you know, you should have reasonably avoided. And third, and that's the tricky one, does it actually, does this event actually prevent or, depending on the drafting, prevent or hinder the performance of your obligations in the contract? So when you look at the pandemic itself, you can say that's unforeseeable. Obviously, nobody expected this. So people who ent entered into contracts back in January, you could, uh, you could say that's unforeseeable in terms of both the pandemic itself and the governmental restrictions that have followed. And that's a key test, unforeseeability, because obviously if the parties can foresee what, is, what may reasonably happen, that's, that's something commercial or businessmen are expected to allocate appropriately the risk as between them yeah so can we say that so like, I think when um, you look, yeah we... exactly when you look at the pandemic itself you can say it's unforeseeable let's we can i think assume that and secondly you can assume it's it's outside of control it's either the spread of the infection itself or the um the governmental measures a commercial party wouldn't be expected to uh, have that within their control but where a lot of contracts become unstuck is well but does this actually prevent or hinder the performance and that's probably the killer in most cases yeah. <laughs> to use an unfortunate phrase i guess uh, yeah think about this yeah. what happens if the, for the if there's the force majeure clause are triggered if there's a force majeure what, what happens to the contracts now well i think first you you have to sort of analyze first Am I actually in the force majeure trigger points? Because, as I mentioned, does it prevent or hinder my performance? And I think what the best thing to do is to split the obligations. What are the obligations of the seller and what are the obligations of the buyer in a typical sale of goods or sale of goods contract? And you have to remember the, the burden of proof, which means, you know, you have to evidentially prove it if you want to trigger the force majeure event. 
so if we look at what does a seller typically have to do, if it's if it's a good, it's it's likely that the seller is either extracting and selling raw material or he's processing raw material for sale to the purchaser. The prevention of performance is a high threshold. We have to always remember that. And what English law is particularly very careful about is that it will put commercial parties to a very high burden because of the point about contractual certainty. So it's not whether commercially the contract is no longer practical or profitable or it's become more difficult or I'm not making the profit I expected from this contract. Can I get out of it? This is not what typically a force majeure clause will address. Or, you know, you can have things like Obviously, customer demand has dropped dramatically and a purchaser may say, well, I don't need this thing that I wanted in the first place because I can't find my customers who will buy it on from me. What you could say for a seller, it's often, if it's easy, it's often a bit easier for a seller to say, I couldn't produce the product in circumstances such as this, where there'll often be, there may be governmental shutdowns of factories so I'm trying to produce the products, but the government has shut down and doesn't permit me to operate the factory. It may be that the goods you're selling are subject to some kind of quarantine or export restriction. But again, you have to remember, does this prevent performance or does it make it more difficult? And that, that's really where the analysis lies. And often you'll see that it's actually something that's become more burdensome or, or makes it more difficult, or you have to jump through a bit few more loopholes through a few more hoops but you can actually still sell the product but typically this a strong seller will also in his contracts try to define or make the uh, the force majeure clause a bit more wider than just prevention and he, he may introduce things like a substantial change or or something that gets to something that's more like a hardship clause which which we have to remember hardship, which is more about a contract becoming more economically difficult, is a very is actually different to force majeure, but a lot strong sellers may try to effectively dilute a technical force majeure clause in their negotiations. On the other hand, when you look at the purchaser, actually commercially a purchaser may be in will be in very difficult circumstances often in this pandemic, but actually when they were trying to buy the product in January the economy was looking normal, everything was looking fine. I'm buying this this product from China or Japan. I'm going to import it into Turkey and then sell it to my customers. And you might find actually, well, you know, the demand has suddenly plummeted. There's no construction, there's no uh, substantial work in many sectors. But actually, if you look at the contract, what's the purchaser's obligation? His obligation is to take delivery and buy the product. And I guess if you, if you know, thinking about a very simple example, you, you could think of the example of a, you know, you bought you bought a bicycle on Amazon in January. You thought you were going to cycle around Istanbul, <laughs> right? But yeah, it is, it is a bit can, hilly. The fact but... that you can't ride the bicycle doesn't mean you, you know, if you're a businessman, I'm, I'm not talking about consumer cases here, but if you're a businessman, you can still cycle, you know, you, you can purchase a bicycle. Whether you want to, whether you can use it is a different matter. Or what, what the purpose of your buying the bicycle, whether to make you more fit, is, is kind of irrelevant, actually. Uh, especially yeah. in these kind of temporary circumstances where, you know, the, these measures may, uh, may be lifted. So you can see there that the seller and the purchasers have different obligations. And actually, 
the way you analyze it is to look at whether those obligations are actually being prevented from being performed. So Emre, uh, we have this concept in Turkish law that so we can uh, revise the contract uh, contracts according to the new condition, developing conditions. Is there some something else, something similar to this in English law? No, there isn't. I mean, first of all, when we talk about force majeure, we say, well, you know, is the force majeure clause in the contract? I mean, if let's say there is no force majeure clause, and often there isn't in very simple uh, international sales situations, the fallback in English law is a concept of contractual frustration. So it's very different to what you've mentioned, which is a change of circumstances that effectively allow you or permit you to at least uh, seek proceedings to re- revise the contract there is not such a concept but there is a concept of contractual frustration but actually what what it ends up being close to is a very strict form of force majeure so it, it requires that if the parties are effectively unable to perform due to an impossibility factual legal impossibility or there is a radical truly radical change in circumstances then the contract may be terminated so that's you only have one remedy which is termination it's not a it's not a remedy of suspending or delaying operation of the contract under frustration which is purely a common law which means you know your contract has not provided for a force majeure clause and this is mm-hmm. this is a potential fallback but it doesn't allow suspension and it doesn't allow what you've talked about which is a revision to the contract which is in reality actually probably what most people would want uh, rather than mm-hmm. pure termination so it's a very narrow scope and why is it narrow it's the english law is coming from this perspective which is the fear that the court has that uh, and there's a sort of famous quote about that is it's the, the contractual frustration is not lightly to be invoked to relieve contracting parties of the normal consequences of imprudent bargains and that's what it's all about it's imprudent bargains should you as the commercial businessman shouldn't you have allocated this risk partly it's about that and partly it's about the concept of moral hazard which is you know bad things happen somebody has to bear the loss and you know it shouldn't be a route for parties to get out of bad bargains or or, or contracts that turn out to be worse than they were because it's it's then very difficult isn't it because you could say well my currency has collapsed by 30% well should the test be 30% or 40% or is it should it be 35% you can imagine that for a judge they don't want to get involved in commercial decisions because it's it's very difficult to know when where to draw the line and it doesn't mean that it's completely hopeless i mean frustration has been successfully used and but very rarely So, I mean, you have cases from a long time ago, but effectively what they were trying to cover are cases where the whole purpose of the contract has completely collapsed. And when you see it in practice, you'll see, you know, even in the around 50, 60 years ago, there were a bunch of cases about, you know, the ships couldn't pass through the Suez Canal. Uh, mm-hmm. which you know effectively added six months to journeys and the courts whilst recognizing there is a concept of frustration was saying well the fact that it takes a bit longer or substantially longer <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean your contract is over you, we try to hold you to the to the bargain and the same and you saw that again in the the last big crisis global crisis was back in 2008 and and there are cases that were really trying to really more about well my contract has become much 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 worse than i could ever have imagined but the courts were very strict about well we're not 
talking about economic difficulties here. So it's really got to be something like a, you know, a state, con- well, not confiscation, but it could be confiscation or a license ban or something that completely stops you doing the thing that you were trying to do. Uh, but obviously things like personal service contracts are, are a different you know, different kettle of fish. So if, if you're going on stage to give your pop concert uh, yeah. and, uh, and you fall sick or you can't do it or the stage has burnt down, that's, you know, you, that's a bit easier <laughs> to prove. But, you know, the point you make about revision is something that you do obviously find in civil code jurisdictions like Turkey and, and other civil code countries, which is really about there's an extreme change or restriction or hardening of my of what I expected to be contracting for. Uh, and that may allow you to seek a form of revision to the contract. And I, I guess the English law perspective, like I said, is, well, you know, where do you draw the line? What's, you know, is this case by case? Because that, that obviously has a tension with the idea of predictability, that you should be able to predict how your contract will operate in in circumstances, but obviously the benefit of this ability to re- revise is, you know, may help certain businesses in these kinds of difficult circumstances. I see. <clears throat> so, like the English law does uh, have less flexibility and more certainty to the, it gives more certainty to the contracts. Not uh, on... yeah, exactly. I mean, what what you're expected to do is is really use your contract to try to. Um, to find contractual provisions that you can draft as be- and negotiate between the parties to cater for these issues, which is either have a force majeure clause, which is you know uh, defines the circumstances in which you can exercise it and sets out the consequence. You'll typically in the ICC example, mm-hmm. you'll have a period of suspension of obligations, and then after a certain period of time, 120 days, 90 days, 180 days, to then terminate. The tricky thing is, and it's very difficult for a sale contract, because these are, you know, these are negotiated quickly. People don't spend days on it. And, and it's, it's the point about revision. It's, it, in English law, it's difficult to, to actually cater for that circumstance, because if you say, if something dramatic happens, the, the, the parties shall, in good faith, negotiate a change to their price that wouldn't be enforceable because that's effectively asking the court to step in and negotiate a change on your behalf if you can't negotiate it. So that's where it becomes difficult and where you have to become more sophisticated in terms of price amending mechanisms, you know, something that makes it clear for a a judge or arbitrator that if X happens, the market price shall apply or a variation of that kind of theme where you then get this substance and something that's clear as to what happens if there is a dramatic change. And, and of course, that's where negotiations, it's very difficult to negotiate these, uh, these in sales contracts. Um, Emre, do you have any final remarks, remarks for uh, the, and any tips for the parties that are going to enter into contracts, international sales contracts within these days during the COVID outbreak? Well, I think it's been, you know, obviously it's a very difficult time and but these kind of challenges really is a time for businesses to sort of look again at their what are typically standard form contracts, their standard form sale contracts and and make sure they have a, a well drafted force majeure clause that is addressing not only what is the event that not only an event that constitutes a force majeure, but also the what are the consequences of the event and also which is 
really about suspension, termination, or some kind of revision mechanic. And also, you have to be careful in terms of if you want to trigger the force majeure, is it something that you want to make sure it's something that's preventive? Does it prevent my obligation? Or should it be something looser, which is getting towards making it more commercially difficult to perform, which or more commercially impractical to perform? And that really is, depends on which side. Are you the seller or the buyer? For the seller, is it easier for you to effectively suspend your contract, which may, which would sound good, but then if you're the buyer, you want the certainty. So I think this is an opportunity for businesses, really, and it will be very sector specific, is to review their and make sure they have their force majeure clauses uh, ready and uh, and in a way that that protects them in these difficult uh, times. Okay. So thank you very much for your comments, and so. This is it, I guess. Yeah, thanks for, your, thanks for inviting me, and I hope to be invited again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should do it more often. Okay. Thanks All right, then. Thank you, Emre. Take care. See you. See you. Bye.